Take your Bibles for our study this morning and open with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Get used to that. I'm going to be saying that over and over again for the next 30 years. Just kidding. (laughs) Some of you asked why I chose the Gospel of Luke. It's really hard to know. I mean, I'm always wanting to be in a Gospel and uh, studying one, reading one. I remember how much we loved in this church, the Gospel of John, those of you who went through the Gospel of John together. And, um, you know, John presented uh, Jesus Christ in all of His glory as uh, the fulfillment of Gospel purpose and uh, that He was the Messiah and that if you believe in Him, you'd have eternal life. He said that in the 20th chapter of His Gospel. I haven't yet studied at length or done an exposition at length through Matthew or Mark, uh, but while we were in John, we ran our way through quite a few of the passages in those other two synoptic Gospels, and uh, it's wonderful that Matthew clearly writes uh, largely to a Jewish audience and and um, presents Jesus as the rightful heir to David's throne, the King of glory himself, the one who has the right to rule, and of course Mark is an abridged version really of that, and and yet presents this wonderful irony of the king who is a servant. Uh, he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so even in that abridged version, there's this wonderful picture of Jesus Christ. We come to the Gospel of Luke, and I've always, as I said, wanted to keep the Gospels in front of us and keep Jesus Christ in the focus of our, our mind's eye, if you will, and in front of our spiritual vision Because we always want to have His person and His life and His work and His ministry and His death and His resurrection and His exaltation as the very things that captivate us as a ministry. We want Him to always be our spiritual 2020, as it were, and always be looking at Him. And so the best way to do that is to find ourselves frequently in Gospels. And we finished our study of Romans, and now we're going to find ourselves in Luke. It's going to be a great, great study. This morning is going to frustrate you as well as maybe... um, cause you to anticipate a little bit about next week. It's very difficult to know. Every time I come to a, a gospel and I, I think, you know, we're going to study this, and, and then I think about preaching it, I always think, well, I'm just not going to do these lengthy introductions, you know, I'm just going to jump right in. Well, you can't really do that. I mean, the more, the more you read widely and study the text itself and you survey it and you start to break it up into its necessary uh, sections, you, you know there's just a lot to say and to focus our attention. And I told the early service, I want you to begin to read the Gospel of Luke as your reading exercises, as your Bible reading, a good portion of it. Whatever else you do, it would be wonderful if you began to read the Gospel of Luke so we can come to some understanding together of this great work that God inspired this wonderful man to write. Now, I've entitled the introductory messages, both this week and next week, Luke, a servant for the sake of the truth. Luke, a servant for the sake of the truth. It comes, of course, from Luke chapter 1, verse 4, where he says to Theophilus, to whom he is writing, I want you to know the exact truth. And you remember in verse 2, he calls the eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus servants of the word. Servants of the word. Luke is the longest of the four Gospels, in fact, combined with the book of Acts, which we'll talk about in a moment, the fact that he wrote both. If you combine the two of them, the, he wrote 25, over 25% of the New Testament, and if you, if you take all of Paul's epistles, it's still not 
pound for pound as much content as you have in the book of Luke and the book of Acts combined. In all ancient manuscripts, Luke is the title over this over this gospel, and so it's been the official tradition since as early as the first quarter of the second century that that Luke's name has been on Luke's gospel. There are fragments, ancient fragments outside of the Bible that note that Luke is the the author. The early church fathers, we sometimes call them, that is to say those who came after the apostles who then began to, in the early church, few first centuries, began to teach the church and shepherd the church. Some even like Polycarp, commissioned and discipled by the apostle John. They wrote that Luke was the one who penned this gospel. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria rather, Origen, Tertullian, Eusebius, Jerome, they all said that Luke was the one who penned the gospel and the book of Acts. Unanimous tradition is all the more surprising if it weren't true since Luke wasn't even an apostle. And scholars have said, look, when you want to look at documentation of ancient literature, uh, sometimes traditions are not to be held at face value. But this one certainly would be because Luke wasn't even prominent in, in society and necessarily factored in as a, as a central figure in the spread of the gospel. So the fact that his name survived in the tradition as being the author of this and Acts seems, seems pretty sound at that point. Both books, this one and the book of Acts, are addressed to a man by the name of Theophilus. Notice it in verse 3. Most excellent Theophilus. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, The first account I composed, O Theophilus. In other words, it's addressed to the same person, and he refers back to a first book, a first account, a first history, using that similar terminology. And so both Luke and Acts are dedicated to the, the same reader. Acts, again, refers to that first treatise. It may also indicate in the terminology in the first verse of the first chapter of Acts that there was a third on the way. It's an interesting word. He actually uses a term in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 that indicates there might have even been plans for a third, although the book of Acts ends with Paul still in prison in Rome and not yet finished with his trial. Both Luke and Acts contain similar language, similar phrases. Alfred Plummer, the classic commentary on Luke, he said that anyone who will underline the phrases and the words and the constructions which are especially frequent in the book will then go to the book of Acts and underline the same phrases and words and constructions and they'll soon have the strong conviction of the the singular identity of authorship. Both books have the same common interests and the storyline of Acts naturally flows from Luke's gospel. You have the life of Jesus, you have his death, resurrection, exaltation, and ascension into heaven. And then you have Acts beginning with his apostles and then what happens with them in the life of the church. We also know, though we don't know much else, we also know that Luke was a companion of the apostle Paul. In fact, in the book of Acts, you have, and you're going to know this because we're going to talk about it throughout our study of the book of Luke, there are things we call we passages, places in the book of Acts where the, the pronoun changes from they to we, and so the, the writer of the book of Acts, the same one who's the writer of the book of Luke, Luke himself begins to include himself in those, quote, we passages of the book of Acts. Whenever you read them, you know those are times when Luke joined up with Paul. 
He began in the 16th chapter of Acts. He joined up with Paul at Troas when Paul had come into town and he'd gotten by the Spirit a Macedonian call. And so he's going to go north to Macedonia and Luke begins to write there in the book of Acts that he had joined him and so he includes himself in it. We, we call them the we sections of the book of Acts. You have a section in Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 21, and Acts chapter 22, or 27 rather, with the shipwreck. And so he was a companion of Paul. He traveled with him. He joined him at Troas when Paul received that Macedonian call. He later reappears, after having left a bit, he reappears with Paul on his return visit to Philippi. He also accompanied Paul on missionary journeys towards Jerusalem and then stayed with Philip at Caesarea and then later, as I said, was on the boat where Acts chapter 27 records that on the way to Rome, Paul was shipwrecked. And so there is Luke with him. He's a companion of the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine being discipled by Paul? Can you imagine hanging on to his coattails, his robe tail or whatever they wore? Can you imagine being dragged around some of the places Paul was dragged around? This was Luke. He traveled with Paul through difficult times. And in those sections, those we sections, it can't be any of the other companions that traveled with Paul because they are mentioned. Silas, Timothy, Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These are all guys that are mentioned. And so clearly Luke excludes himself from it. So, so he's the companion of Paul who's writing the book of Acts, which means then he's the author here of Luke. Now, what do we know about him? Not, not really much, as I said. Colossians 4, verse 14. Take your Bible and look at Colossians 4 for a moment. You have mention of him in one of the three New Testament epistles where he's mentioned. And this will be very, very important as we think about Luke's purpose in writing There is a little notation here in Colossians 4, verse 14, where Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. The beloved physician. So we know he was a doctor. This may, by the way, account for what we'll see in Luke's gospel. Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, places an emphasis on the healings of Jesus, the healing ministry of Christ. It wasn't so much that Luke used medical language in the book of Luke. I know that some commentators have thought he did that. And there was a classic work done uh, years, decades ago that, that tried to, to say that Luke was so unique and that he used all this medical language. And others came behind that work and said, no, that's not really true. It just means he's educated. And it is true. The text of Luke's gospel means he was very educated and he was poetic. He was a literary master. He was skilled at such things. He could write really well. He knew both classical and Koine Greek, or at least the Greek of the average street person in that time. And then he also knew the higher sort of formal type of language that the Greeks used, as we'll see in a moment in the first four verses of the book of Luke. But he was a physician and he emphasized the Lord's ministry of healing, most importantly because Luke had a heart for afflicted people. You see it all through his gospel. Ten significant healings he mentions, and he mentions them in contexts where the issue is that the gospel is coming through the grace of God toward afflicted people. Luke, as a servant of the truth, loved the fact that God was gracious. He loved the grace of God 
He was thrilled with the grace of God. And the power of God in the healing ministry of Jesus demonstrated for him that he was indeed, uh, that the gospel was grounded in the grace of God. And so besides being called the beloved physician, we, we don't know a whole lot else. Look at Colossians 4 verse 11. We know that Luke is a Gentile because in verse 11 you have these other names who are from the circumcision. Jesus who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. Well, if Luke had been included as a Jew in that list, then he would not have been excluded. But he was excluded from those who are from the circumcision. So Luke is a Gentile. And since he joined Paul at Troas, the book of Acts says, at his first time of companionship with Paul in his travels, it may very well be that he was from that sec- that section of the country. Beyond that, we don't know very much. There is an ancient document, just as a little practical footnote, there is an ancient document that says that he never married and that he died at 84. It's not necessarily, uh, it's not in scripture, it's not a reliable document in that sense, it's just an ancient version of an introduction to Luke. And sometimes is attached to Latin manuscripts. And it says that he was 84 uh, when he died and that he, he actually never married. And they even say he might have been or was from Antioch. So that area of the, of the country, we don't really know much else for sure. And other than referencing himself in the we sections of Acts, Luke is mentioned in, in only two other places in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Philemon 24. And he's also mentioned at the end of Paul's ministry, when Paul's in prison in Rome, Paul is writing to Timothy that second time, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, look, Demas has loved this present world and left the ministry, and only Luke is with me. So at the end of Paul's ministry, this stalwart of the faith, after all that's gone on, he's in Rome, trial hasn't been yet completed, And Luke is there with him. The beloved physician is there with him. We're also told in that Colossians text that he's a fellow worker in spreading the gospel. Not a fellow prisoner. Doesn't appear that Luke was in prison with Paul, though he was there for two of his imprisonments. He was ministering to him through two of his imprisonments. That must have taken some courage on Luke's part. To hang around Paul in the... the, the, turbulent times and the hostility toward the gospel to be with Paul ministering to Paul having a reputation of someone whom Paul needed and he was around Paul calls him a fellow worker in spreading the gospel I think it's interesting too very providential that during the second missionary journey Paul went through the southern Galatian area And that's when a church was born in those Galatian areas, when the gospel reached the Galatian churches. And it's interesting that during that time, Luke was with Paul. You say, why is that significant? Because if you read in Galatians chapter 4, he had an illness. He refers to the time when he was with the churches in Galatia, and he had some sort of serious illness that may have even been with his vision, because he mentions, hey, if you you had the opportunity, you Galatians would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So he was laid up in the Galatian region, and that's when a church was born. The gospel reached the Galatians, and Luke was with him during that time. So how nice and providential and kind of the Lord to provide a companion as courageous as Luke who had medical skill who could minister to Paul during that time. As I said, 
Luke even went through the shipwreck, Acts 27 and 28. He went through the shipwreck with the Apostle Paul. And so what we know about Luke is that he loved the fact that God was gracious to the afflicted. And when Luke himself was afflicted, he was a man of tremendous courage. He'd seen a tremendous amount of trouble. He had had some exhausting travel with the Apostle Paul and he was on the front line of a very hostile gospel ministry. And even at the end of Paul's ministry, he remained with Luke. Now, I'm not going to go through the details on the date of Acts, but it's very interesting that since he doesn't... Met, we have to date Acts and then we can date the Gospel of Luke, but Acts... Uh, does not include any record of Paul's trial being finished. And so he, he certainly would have included that in the book of Acts in his historical record if Luke had reached that point. And so you have us at that point in the early 60s. If Luke and Acts were written while Paul was still in that Roman prison, then Luke probably wrote them both near or around the same time, back to back, almost as if he said, look, I finished the gospel, now I'm going to go on to this history so far of what I've collected in my travels with Paul. Luke records the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 in his gospel in Luke 19 and Luke 21, but he never records the fulfillment of it. And so clearly we're not at 70 A.D. yet when he writes his gospel. He always made it a point to record those prophetic fulfillments. Acts chapter 11 proves that. It doesn't even mention Nero's widespread persecution, which was in A.D. 64. So neither Luke nor Acts mentions Nero's persecution of the church. Surely a historian of his meticulous detail would have mentioned that. So we're not even at A.D. 64 yet. And if some scholars who who suggest James' martyrdom comes into play here, if they're right, James was martyred in A.D. 62, and so surely Luke would have mentioned that James was martyred in A.D. 62. So essentially what you have is Luke writes his gospel in about A.D. 60 to 61, and back to back then at some point, with maybe a short interval between, pens the acts of of the church. Now, I, I found it interesting studying a little bit of that. I, don't, I can't go into all that. It's fascinating, but there's so much I couldn't dump on you. But I had to give you this little practical note. Scrolls, the most usable scroll that we know at the time, typically was about 35 feet in length. And so if you take all that's in the book of Luke and all that's in the Acts of the Apostles, which he wrote as the sequel, you would have two scrolls, well, each well over 25 feet long. And so... Uh, scholars have suggested that because they're both addressed to Theophilus, that he intended for them uh, to re- be written back to back and given to the same guy so they could be read as one piece. There's too much material for just one scroll. So maybe it was intended that, that he write these and then they be taken as one piece to the purpose for which he was sending it. Now, as I said, they're both addressed to Theophilus. Who is this guy? Well, notice Acts chapter or Luke chapter 1, rather. Notice the title, and I do believe it is a title. I, I searched around. There are some theories that this just that he, this is either a, a metaphor for every Gentile, just sort of a fictitious name, <laughs> to that ridiculous theory, uh, all the way from that to this is a, a Roman official of the higher court. Now, the text doesn't say that, but notice verse 3. It does say that he did this and gave it, or wrote it for most excellent Theophilus, 
most excellent Theophilus. Uh, the, the best we can say is that he is probably, at the very least, of some high social rank, or at the very most, he is some sort of official in the government. I like to imagine that maybe he was part of what Paul refers to as Caesar's household in Philippians 4.22, when he says, greet those who are in the church who are of Caesar's household. Maybe Luke was one of those, or maybe Theophilus was one of those. Maybe he was saved while a part of what Paul refers to as Caesar's household. And if Theophilus was a Roman official, then he was a Gentile. So although Luke and Acts is addressed to Theophilus, he really knows that this could go out to the Gentile world. This could spread beyond him, and in fact, he uses in the first four verses of his gospel such a formal Greek style, such a classical Greek style for introducing a piece of history that it has to be that in Luke's mind, look, I'm going to pen this for my good friend Theophilus, I'm going to pen the entire history so that he knows exactly what's going on, and then when he sends it up the chain, it's going to go to the Gentile world because I'm a Gentile writing to Gentiles. Now, I have to say, that is the grace of God, isn't it? What a thrill for Luke. Because he knew, having traveled with Paul and having heard the gospel, that the Old Testament promised the gospel would spread to Gentile to the Gentile world. Well, look, Luke was a physician. He'd seen what paganism had done. He'd seen the worst of society, and maybe even in his own life and heart. Maybe he did like many doctors. They go to their office every day. They look at the human body on charts. They see it on computer in 3D, 4D. And uh, don't you marvel at that? You go into your doctor's office, there's a chart of the human eye. And I just stare at that chart. Wow. You know, and the doctor comes in there, he, he sees that chart. He even sees the human eye. And he gets that machine and he looks into your brain. And that light's shining in there. And he's seeing all that stuff that's on that chart. And it means nothing to him. Maybe that's what it was like for Luke. Maybe before he was a beloved physician, he was a pagan physician who didn't care. He saw nothing in it. And now, the gospel has come to him. And so he's, he is going to write it to this most excellent, worthy recipient... Theophilus, and he knows that Gentiles in the Gentile world are going to read it and it's going to be copied. And so he introduces it with this formal language, this formal Greek that is used by every ancient historian because he knows it could be published. And as it goes up the chain, he doesn't want it discredited. One scholar even suggests that one of the purposes was to ultimately prepare the trial brief for Paul's trial in Rome. As if to say, when he sat down to pen these, or when he was traveling and penning them along the way, and Paul was in Rome awaiting trial, it may very well be that Luke let Theophilus have these, and maybe they went to some of Paul's legal defense in Rome. This week I started reading and read portions of a new book on the market. Maybe you've seen it. Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard. It's called Killing Jesus. You remember they wrote Killing Lincoln and Killing Kennedy, and now they're, they've just published Killing Jesus. At the beginning of the book, O'Reilly and Dugard make this claim. The story of Jesus' life and death has never fully been told until now. <laughs> oh, poor souls. 
One early reviewer of the book who read the whole thing said, quote, Killing Jesus is not a bad book as much as it is an incomplete book. Yeah. As history, he says, it's compelling. But of all historical events, none has greater spiritual significance than the life and death of Jesus Christ. And this is the story they miss, end quote. So true. Well, Luke acknowledges that even in Jesus' day, some had compiled accounts of things, verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things. Listen, Luke's gospel will utterly dwarf even the best earthly, natural attempts at narrating the life of Christ. And it's not just because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which of course immediately launches him into another category, because this is a supernatural work, it's not merely natural literature. But it's also because Luke attempts to strike the perfect balance between historical fact and theological potency. He does two things. I want this to be meticulous and irrefutable, and I want it to be theologically rich for the Gentile world. Follow along as I read these first four verses, this opening. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. End quote. Now, I love that. This sentence, as I said, is in formal Greek. It's different than the rest of the gospel. The rest of the gospel is in more of the, the, the average sort of communication style, though it's very poetic, it's very literarily high-end in terms of its layout, in terms of its, uh, you know, the author's skill at writing. Sir William Ramsey, the, the Scottish archaeologist and uh, New Testament scholar who died in 1939, he, you know, he, the famous story is he set out to disprove it by disproving the reliability of Acts. And if he could disprove the reliability of Acts, then it would topple Luke's reliability or the, the alleged reliability of the Gospel of Luke. And so he set out to do that. He took his archaeological skill and all of his historical skill and all his literary skills and he wanted to prove once and for all that both books were just the creation of some second century fancy. Well, when he started his research, it had the opposite result. He said this when it was all done. I may fairly claim to have entered on this investigation without prejudice in favor of the conclusion which I shall now seek to justify to the reader. But on the contrary, I began with a mind unfavorable to it. But more recently, I found myself brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority for the topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor. And it was gradually borne upon me that in various details, the narrative showed marvelous truth. In fact, And he's talking about an historical investigation, not a supernatural one. He didn't believe in the supernatural nature of it, the spirit superintending it. 
In fact, beginning with a fixed idea that the work was essentially a second century composition and never relying on its evidence as a trustworthy for, as trustworthy for first century conditions, I gradually came to find it an ally in the obscure and difficult investigations. Luke is a historian of first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatness, the greatest of historians, end quote. Of course. Of course. Back to the early verses. Notice, Luke says, this is an account of the things accomplished. And then that fourth verse, so that God's people may know the exact truth. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are works of factual history with a singular purpose. That the reader would know the exact truth. And when you read these opening words of the gospel, they just refuse to be ignored. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, God took Luke, his acute mind, God used Luke's technical precision, his tenacity, his meticulous system of organizing information. And by the way, Luke would have irritated you, he was so organized. Especially those of you who fly by wire. If you traveled with him, he would have been the guy that irritates you. He was meticulous in his organization of information. And his love for the truth about Christ and the fact that the Spirit of God supernaturally inspired this unique combination of Luke's capacities and his skills and his passion inspired him to pen and compile and write out the exact truth. The truth of Jesus Christ and His people, the church. And this was not new to God's people with regard to what God wants us to know. This is why Luke becomes for us a servant of the truth. A servant for the sake of the truth. This is familiar ground for people who know the Word of God. God does not want you doubting. He does not want you unclear. Sometimes Christians say, oh, I'm Christian. Oh, I believe the gospel. Really, where is the story of the cross? Do you know any, any place it is in the Bible? And some will tell you they don't have any idea. Others will say, oh, I believe the scriptures. And then when it comes to some of the most basic truths of scripture, they deny it. Oh, I, I believe in Jesus Christ and his cross, but I don't believe in hell. How can that be? God does not want you to be ambiguous in your thinking. Luke said, I want you to know the exact truth, the precise truth. And I'm going to do it as a Gentile, and I'm going to do it handing it to an official group, and I'm going to open up with an official ability-to-be-published kind of prologue as an introduction to this gospel, and I'm going to do a sequel that is just as meticulous. And can you imagine the frightening nature of doing acts if you were trying to fool with facts? Can you imagine that? You're not going to get away with that because as the history of Acts moves toward the end of Paul of Luke's pen, it moves closer to where he's living. So people are still alive who know those things. You might get away with eyewitnesses already being dead about those who told you what happened when Jesus was on the earth, but Acts has to be meticulous in its facts. And he wrote it with confidence, both this and that volume, and he wrote it to the same person and said, look, you take this up the hill. I want you to know the truth. That was a familiar theme for God's people. In ancient Israel, when they were in bondage in Egypt and 
Moses was the deliverer. What did he say to Pharaoh in Exodus 8 and Exodus 9? Look, these plagues that are coming upon you, it is so that you will know that there's no one like me in all the earth, God said through the prophet Moses. So that you'll know there's no one like me in all the earth. So that you'll know. God said to Joshua who succeeded Moses and took took God's people and led them Joshua 3, verse 7, I will exalt you, Joshua, so that the people will know that I am with you. Look, I want you to know who's leading this people and on whose behalf. Deliver us from the enemy's hands so that all the kingdoms on the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. 2 Kings nineteen nineteen. This is familiar. Isaiah, the prophet, it was all over the prophet's words. Isaiah 45, verse 3, I will give you the hidden wealth of the secret places so that you will know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who calls you by my name. He's talking there to an enemy he's going to bring upon Israel. So that you'll know it's me that raises up nations to chasten my people. And it's me that gives them the hidden wealth that belongs in your nation. When Jesus was on the earth in his public ministry, they accused him, you don't have any authority. You don't have any authority. And so they had a lame man brought before him, Matthew chapter 9. And he says, well, which is easier to say, rise up and walk or your sins are forgiven? Well, obviously it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's unverifiable. But to say, get up and walk, now that's going to be verifiable instantly. And so he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sin. Get up and walk. The guy got up and walked. So that you may know. Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that we may know what is the hope of our calling. God doesn't want you to be vague. And when he writes a gospel, when he inspires a gospel through someone so meticulous as Luke, I get chills. That's so rich, so kind, so gracious. People say to me, well, how do you know you have eternal life? Well, 1 John 5. 1 John 5, verse 13, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Look, I know that God gave me eternal life because He tells me, hey, here are the things I'm doing by my Spirit so that you may know. You don't have any reason to doubt. And I'm sure when Theophilus got these volumes into his hot little hands, it must have thrilled him to have that opening be so formal and he could take it, march it right up to those who might doubt. And so... We see that Luke's excited here about giving us the exact truth. Now, I'm just going to give you in the next five minutes five little purposes that we see in these first four verses. And the next week, we're going to give you some themes that you're going to see all the way through the study of Luke. And these are absolutely rich. They are thrilling. But just in these first four verses, in this prologue, in this introductory section... These will go very fast, but here, here you can begin to see what Luke is doing. First of all, we've already seen that he wants to give the exact truth. So that first purpose is to silence those who contradict. To silence those who contradict. Verse 4, Theophilus, I want to give this to you so that you may know the exact truth. Look, if there had been shoddy research, it would be easily discredited. Luke knows he can't do shoddy research. Everybody's going to check the facts. Look, even up until the 1920s and 30s, unbelievers like William Ramsey were checking the facts. 
People are still checking the facts. It's an ancient document. Always cracks me up when people say, oh, you know, archaeology disproves the Bible. Look, the Bible is an artifact. (laughs) It makes no sense to me that people don't study this artifact. It's older than the pots you dig up. Some plane of dirt. You know, people are still checking the facts of Luke. Why? Because he wrote so meticulously so as to silence the contradictions. I love that. All through Luke, we're going to see the contradictions silence. Does that not thrill your heart? I love that. All your friends who dispute the gospel of Christ and the details of Christ, you're going to see it. You're going to see it unfold. And Luke is a master at it. An absolute master. Did you know that he's the only gospel that records the birth announcement and birth of John the Baptist and he's the only one that does it parallel to Jesus' birth announcement and Jesus' birth? Without Luke, we wouldn't have that. I love that. Why does he do that? Because he he takes the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam. Look, the gospel's for mankind, not just Israel. Matthew's genealogy is all about the tracing the line of Jesus back through David, back all the way to the, to the legal right to the throne, not Luke. Luke is all about, hey, I'm tracing him back to Adam. Because I want you to know that any human being who's of human nature, who's of fallen human nature, is savable. I love that. Without Luke, we wouldn't have that. So you're going to be able to check that. You're going to be given facts about that. Secondly, he's clearly affirming and perpetuating what has been passed down. Verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Look, it was passed down meticulously. I'm, a, I'm perpetuating it, he says. I've checked my sources. And so he appeals to... Well-established personal testimonies of those who walked with Jesus. And remember, people's testimonies, look, how many people saw Jesus? How many people walked with Jesus? How many people stood in the crowd and listened to Jesus? You can't have that many people from that many different human backgrounds and that much personal bias giving all of their versions of what they heard and having any of it have any semblance of clarity. And yet there was. What does that tell you? That tells you that God preserved that eyewitness testimony from those who were with Him. And all Luke did was get it from here, get it from here, get it from here, independent sources, and just check it all. And guess what? They all matched. I mean, that is amazing. People say the four Gospels contradict? Are you kidding? Luke checked with eyewitness testimony across the spectrum, and they all agreed. They all agreed in the essentials. That's amazing. These accounts were told, orally retold. Documented by various individuals. Notice verse 1. Many have undertaken to compile. So there was already extant literature out there that was being checked and double-checked and, and refuted by enemies. But it was being systematically passed down to all believers for the edification of believers and the, the salvation of believers. For evangelism it was being spread around. And by the way, again, Luke is not denigrating inspiration. He he is being superintended upon by the Spirit of God, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. And so the Spirit of God takes Luke's personality and his vocabulary and his style and, and his unique gifting and, and his tenacity and his meticulous detail organizing and he 
his interviewing of eyewitnesses and those who were around and those who passed that orally to somebody else and then he got it from them and the towns and places he visited, everything he recorded, the Spirit of God is superintending all that so that the facts come forth because Luke wanted to affirm and pass on what was already being passed down. That leads to a third purpose then. He's serving the church by advancing the testimony of the gospel. He's serving the church by advancing the testimony of the gospel. Notice, just as they were handed down by those who from the beginning were servants of the word, and so it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. So in this sense, he's, he's serving the advancement of the Word of God because it is the good news, the people who were servants of the Word in the first generation. Luke's a second generation servant of the truth and he's offering his gifts and skills in service of that same Word. So he wants to advance the Gospel. Not only does he want to pass on meticulously and perpetuate and affirm the message, but he also wants to see the Gospel advancing to people's hearts. He wants to see people saved. That's the bottom line. Fourthly, he's shepherding and strengthening the faith of Theophilus. (laughs) He's shepherding and strengthening the faith of Theophilus. Notice, he said it seemed fitting to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. You've been taught there is is terminology that indicates that Theophilus had not only had the message given to him, but he'd had details given to him, and because he had come to Christ, was already being systematically instructed. So as Luke writes, over whatever period of time he wrote, Luke and Acts, to give to Theophilus, Theophilus was in some sort of Bible study. He was in and under some sort of instruction in the church. The guy was involved with God's people. And so Luke is wanting to write it out for him so that he knows the exact truth and he can compare it with what he is being systematically taught on his end. I love that. Luke Luke wants to see the guy's faith as a Gentile, encouraged. Maybe he thought like sometimes we do. Boy, if the Lord could save that person, think of the influence that person has. Now, I know God doesn't have to save somebody important just because we pray for that, but I'm sure Luke must have thought that about Theophilus. Man, if he could know the exact truth and he could go to the, to the wall with these truths, man, Gentiles could come to Christ through that guy's influence. And then lastly... He just wants to magnify the wonder and power and scope of the gospel. He wants to magnify the wonder and power and scope of the gospel. Notice, it seemed fitting for me as well. I keep thinking that. I read that line and say, why? Why does it seem fitting for Luke? Well, it says here, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. What does that tell you? That before he even decided to write, he was already looking into and peering into everything that he was experiencing. So he'd come to Christ, so he had a testimony, told his testimony, he was baptized, he was in the church. 
he was a Gentile, he was growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and he, he's attached to Paul, and he's a missionary companion, so while he's with Paul, think about it, think what he's doing, he's like the guy that, that, that has a little pad there, and, he, and he's asking questions and watching, and he doesn't just take notes during sermons, he takes notes on what he sees Paul doing. And he's compiling documents and establishing facts and recording testimonies and keeping records and he hasn't even, according to this, he hasn't even, he hasn't even decided to write yet. After he did in all the investigating, it seemed then fitting for him to put it down. That is fascinating to me. That means personally he was keeping records and journaling. Personally he was interested. Personally he's pondering. You know, it's like a person who doesn't want to go to seminary and doesn't want to pastor a church, but he's a student of the Word to such a degree that it just embarrasses the average rank-and-file pastor's knowledge because he's a student of the Word. Tozer never went to seminary, but he had a tremendous level of theological depth. He was a student of the Word. He would have been greatly helped by the church in some of his later theology, but he was pressing in. That was Luke. He was pressing in, studying And no doubt, because he was rejoicing in the gospel's power. It was bolstering his faith. He was learning to trust God. I can't imagine how thrilling it would have been when your faith is shaky to see Paul speak boldly to some hostile crowd of officials. Man, you'd stand up with him. I'm ready. It would strengthen your faith. Luke's faith was strengthened watching those experiences, and he wrote them down. And he was involved in Paul's prayer life, so there was constant prayer for provision and protection. And he was watching the power of the gospel change and transform one life after another broken life. And he saw churches started. And he watched pastors called and commissioned. And he himself was even probably left in Philippi for a time to shepherd some people there. Luke carefully investigated what he'd heard. He compared it with eyewitness testimony. He made inquiries. He sought understanding. He connected theological dots. And he learned to articulate it clearly. And the more it happened, the bolder he became. And so it seemed fitting. Of course it seemed fitting. Luke had heard it. He couldn't contain it. Just imagine him, the kind of guy with the... Two or three satchels hanging around his neck and all kinds of notes popping out of it and a scroll stuck in there and, you know, charcoal or whatever they wrote with. Man. He didn't even need an outside reason to write. He just needs something to write with because what was in him had to come out. Had to come out. I love that. By the time this gospel and its duplicates began to circulate, there were already many enemies of Christ. There would be numerous satanic schemes to distort the facts. And yet, notice, Luke has no problem distributing his account of the things accomplished among us because he knows the attention to detail will help the church. He is truly a servant of the truth Let me ask you this. What are you willing to do to be the next generation of servants for the truth? Would you have sat down and written that much content? Would would you have investigated 
that deeply and that widely and then sat down and penned that kind of document and a sequel to it that had even more extensive detail and research while traveling with the difficulties of ministry he traveled with, would you have been that kind of servant of the word? And not knowing that it would be published widely, you just hoped. And you hand it to one guy. I did this for you, Theophilus. I did this for you. Man, he's a servant of the word, wasn't he? And he's going to show us how, just right from the beginning of the account, when we delve into it, He's going to show us how the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled. And he's going to talk about the Spirit's new covenant ministry. And he's going to talk about how the gospel goes to Gentiles and the people of God is expanding beyond what Israel had known. And the gospel is going to come through as God had promised. And it's going to reach the Gentile world. And Paul had seen it through the apostle to the Gentiles. And he traveled with him. And these two accounts express the love of God. And so... Luke has to be a servant of the truth. Look, if you love the gospel, you're a servant of the truth. What does God call you and ask you to do? This is what he asked Luke to do. And man, he was meticulous. And his very example is calling us not to squander our corner of opportunity that God has given us. Whatever it might be. Know the exact truth. And be a servant for the sake of the truth. It's going to be a thrill to study, isn't it? Luke is a genius. He's a literary genius. And how he begins by paralleling the birth accounts, it's absolute genius. He's not a Jew. He doesn't quote the Old Testament near as much as the other gospel writers. But the quotes that he does give... And the accounts of these parallel birth accounts, John the Baptist and Jesus, and then the parallel accounts of the angel announcing it to, to the parents. Absolutely literary masterpiece work. Why? So we would know the exact truth. You're going to be confident when we're finished. As we go, I want you to read it so that you gain confidence. And then you be like Luke. You check my notes. And you be meticulous. And in the end, you'll be like Theophilus, thrilled to have the gospel of Luke in your hot little hands. Let's pray. Lord, we are are humbled by this man's example. He was courageous. He was painstaking, careful. You can't be driven by natural things, Lord, with such a task. And we, the church, by the power of your Spirit, were served so much by this godly man, a servant for the sake of the truth. And he set, no doubt, so many daily comforts aside just to put it down as a record and and one that is irrefutable even centuries later. And so, Lord, as we dig into this wonderful gospel, I pray that it would confirm and affirm the exact truth to us and bolster our faith as it did, no doubt, Theophilus' faith. 
And may we never cheapen your word by either not believing what it says in its clearest truths or not serving your purposes as you've called us to do several generations later to spread the gospel. Lord, please forgive us for for not being faithful and help us to be ever more faithful as we study this great text. Thank you for Luke. We can't wait to meet him. A wonderful servant. And may we learn to be like Christ as he was like you and emulate his passion for the truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.